This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, there is a devastating new epidemic that is rampant in our nation, causing more than 300,000 premature deaths each year in the U.S. No, we're not talking about COVID-19 or the opioid crisis. We're talking about obesity and the chronic diseases it causes. Since industrialization took hold in the 1800s, just through a few decades ago, the rich were fat, the poor were thin, and people were worried about how to help the starving masses. In modern times, however, the rich are thin, the poor are fat, and people are worrying about how obesity will adversely affect societal health. The percent of the U.S. population considered to be obese has roughly doubled since the 1980s. This epidemiological transition has, for the first time in our history, resulted in the number of overweight and obese people in the United States outnumbering the number of people normal or underweight. The obesity epidemic has huge implications on value-based care due to the impact it has on chronic morbidity, increased mortality, and unrelenting demands on the utilization of limited healthcare resources. Chronic conditions associated with obesity include type 2 diabetes, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and heart disease. These diseases have a destructive effect on the U.S. healthcare system, and leaders in value-based care must start thinking about lifestyle medicine and evidence-based nutrition interventions. The importance of food on our overall health and well-being reminds me of an Ayurvedic proverb. When diet is wrong, medicine is of no use. When diet is correct, medicine is of no need. And indeed, food is medicine and value-based care, and that is what we're going to talk about here today. Listeners, joining us this week, we have the one and only Dr. Dean Ornish, who will be discussing his most recent book, Undo It how simple lifestyle change can reverse most chronic conditions. And it just came out on paperback today. Dr. Ornish is the founder and president of the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute and clinical professor of medicine at UCSF and clinical professor of medicine at UCSD. For over 40 years, he's directed clinical research demonstrating for the first time 
that comprehensive lifestyle changes may begin to reverse even severe coronary heart disease without drugs or surgery. Medicare even created a new benefit category, intensive cardiac rehabilitation, to provide coverage for Dr. Ornish's program for reversing heart disease. He's also directed the first randomized controlled trial demonstrating that comprehensive lifestyle changes may slow, stop, or reverse the progression of early stage prostate cancer. His research showed that comprehensive lifestyle changes affect gene expression, turning on disease preventing genes and turning off genes that promote cancer and heart disease, as well as the first controlled study showing that these lifestyle changes may begin to reverse cellular aging by lengthening telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes, which regulate aging. He's currently directing the first randomized controlled trial to determine if comprehensive lifestyle changes can reverse the progression of early Alzheimer's disease. His three main stage TED Talks have been viewed by over 6 million people. He's one of President Bill Clinton's consulting physicians since 1993. The Ornish diet has been rated number one for heart health by a panel of experts at US News and World Report for the last 11 years. And as of today, January 4th, the date of release for this podcast, the U.S. News and World Report has announced that the Ornish diet is the number one heart-healthy diet for 2022. Dr. Ornish is simply a legend. He's the author of seven books, all national bestsellers, including Undo It, co-authored with Ann Ornish. And today, January 4th, the paperback version of this book is out. Dr. Ornish is the founder of the lifestyle medicine movement and was the inaugural recipient of the ACLM Lifetime Achievement Award, recognizing his extensive contribution to the field of lifestyle medicine. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine is the sponsor of today's episode. And before we start the interview, here's a brief commercial message from the ACLM, an organization that addresses the need for quality, evidence-based education, and certification in lifestyle medicine. Today's Race to Value podcast is brought to you by the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. I got a great opportunity at St. Luke's Health System, and when I walked in the door to interview for that position, I just knew that this is really where my life was going to go because what I witnessed was team-based care and that these patients uh, were actually improving their quality of life and their function. I really got excited at the possibilities that this is really the way healthcare should go and we should find a way to make that work for patients and for healthcare systems. Learn more about integrating lifestyle medicine into your health system at lifestylemedicine.org. Dr. Ornish, welcome to the Race to Value. We're so excited to have you on this week to discuss your book, Undo It, How Simple Lifestyle Changes Can Reverse Most Chronic Conditions, which is now coming out on paperback. And this book is such a powerful masterclass and the importance of lifestyle medicine and how it can reverse or undo most chronic diseases as well as prevent them altogether. And lifestyle medicine is really 
important in the future of value-based care. And your book shows that a radically simple lifestyle medicine program can bring about transformational efforts on a person's health and well-being. We really appreciate you taking your time to stop by the Race to Value. And I can't help but think we're going to be saving lives today for the many healthcare leaders out there that will end up inspired and empowered to implement food-based interventions and lifestyle medicine programs within their population health models of care. So thanks again for joining us this week. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here, saving lives, saving money, transforming uh, lives and transforming healthcare. It's all good stuff. Indeed. And, you know, I thought Dr. Ornish, a good place to start our conversation today would be just to talk about the obesity epidemic and where we are in, in terms of costs. I mean, healthcare expenditures right now associated with the overweight and obese are astronomical and involve both direct and indirect costs. We, we've seen direct costs that are attributed to the overweight, which is the BMI of 25 to 29.9, and the obese, which is BMI greater than 30. Those combined account for about $147 billion in medical expenditures. And joining direct healthcare costs, you also have costs with lost productivity, and obesity is expected to cost a nation upwards of $303 billion annually. And then you take on some of the other direct and indirect costs of obesity, when you think about chronic disease, you think about diabetes costing us $330 billion, hypertension $131 billion, heart disease at $199 billion. I just want our listeners to really appreciate how catastrophic this crisis is. And Dr. Ornish, what really fascinates me about your work in this obesity epidemic is that it, it's kind of an oxymoronic challenge. And what I mean by that, it's so difficult and expensive to treat. I mean, we see how treating obese, obese patients cost about 27% more, yet it's so straightforwardly simple and inexpensive to prevent chronic disease or reverse it with just simple lifestyle choices. And your research really shows that lifestyle medicine program can reverse coronary heart disease, reverse type two diabetes and obesity, reverse or slow prostate cancer, reverse high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or even reverse early stage dementia and have impacts on lowering the, the rates of emotional depression, anxiety. I just think about how we really need to prioritize lifestyle medicine and value-based care. And it's just a, such a tremendous opportunity for our country I and mean, our nation's health system. And I wanted to ask you, do you think the relatively low, slow uptake of lifestyle medicine is due to maybe historical concerns of patient non-compliance to diet modification? And is allopathic reductionism holding us back in the adoption of evidence-based lifestyle medicine programs? Because it emphasizes curative care interventions that are less dependent on patient accountability. First of all, thank you again for having me on. I appreciate so much the chance to help raise awareness because, because to me, awareness is always the first step in healing, whatever it is. And as you indicate, we spend a lot of money in this country on what we call healthcare, which is mostly sick care. 86% of the $3.7 trillion that we spend on healthcare is for treating chronic diseases. Obesity is just one of many that are often preventable. And in, in our studies, even reversible by making simple changes in lifestyle. When we can make better care available to more people at lower costs. And unlike most things we do as doctors, the only side effects of lifestyle changes are, are good ones. For the last, I don't know, 44 years or so, I've directed a series of randomized trials and demonstration projects showing that very simple lifestyle changes, a whole foods plant-based diet that's low in fat and sugar, moderate exercise, various meditation and other stress management techniques derived from yoga, and what we call social support, or to reduce it to its essence, to eat well, move more, stress less, and love more. These simple changes can not only prevent, but also often reverse the progression 
of the most uh, common and costly chronic diseases. And I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost interventions can be and how quickly that can occur. I think my biggest obstacle over these four decades of doing these studies has been that people think, oh, diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. How powerful could that be? It really needs to be a new drug, a new laser, a new device, a surgical procedure, something really high-tech and expensive to be powerful. And yet we've been able to show how powerful these simple changes are. The book um, that just came out in paperback, Undo It, that I co-authored with my wife, Anne, who I've worked with for over 20 years, begins with a quote from one of my favorite quotes, which is from Albert Einstein that says, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And so what I tried to do here is to reduce all this complexity of 44 years of work into some very simple ideas, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. And we began with coronary heart disease. And we found that, you know, at the time when I began doing these studies in 1977, it was thought that heart disease could not be reversed. It, at best, you could slow down the rate at which people got worse. And what we showed for the first time in a series of randomized trials was that heart disease could actually be reversed, that instead of getting worse and worse over time, people could get better and better. And the reason is we were able to show that for the first time is that it's hard to reverse a chronic disease. It's the pound of cure, if you will, as opposed to the ounce of prevention. You don't have to make such big changes to prevent disease as you do to reverse it. But to reverse disease, it requires really big changes and, and not just in one thing, but a lot of things at the same time. And yet the paradox is that we found that Sometimes it's easier for people to make big changes than small ones. We've now trained hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. Medicare created a new benefit category, CMS did, to uh, cover my program for reversing heart disease after many years of review in 2010. We've been training, working with a company called ShareCare and training hospitals and cl clinicians and physician groups around the country. And we're getting bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, and better adherence than anyone's ever shown before. We did a demonstration project with Mutual of Omaha and found that with eight sites, Harvard was one of the sites and also our data coordinating center at, at UCSF, at Scripps, and at uh, Beth Israel in New York, as well as four community hospitals in Omaha, Des Moines, Columbia, South Carolina, where they told me uh, gravy is a beverage, this will be a big change in our lifestyle, which it was, uh, Broward General Hospital in Fort Lauderdale. And we found that almost 80% of people who were told they needed to bypass or a stent we're able to safely avoid it by going on our lifestyle medicine program as a direct alternative. And Mutual of Omaha found that they saved almost $30,000 per patient in the first year. Now, the reason why it's important to show cost savings in the first year, as you probably know, is that insurance companies say, well, you know, why should we spend our money today for some future benefit that someone else is going to get? Because they know that 30% of people change jobs and change insurance companies every year. And so showing cost savings in the first year was really key. We did a second project with Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield, which was covering my program in West Virginia, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, four of the more challenging parts of the country to motivate people to change. And they had such good outcomes, they decided to not only cover it, but provide it in 26 sites in those areas. 10 were in West Virginia alone, which is number one in the country in heart disease. And they found that their, their head of medical informatics, a guy named Don Federoff, who was very skeptical of this whole idea, found compared to a control group of people matched for age and gender and disease severity, that they cut their costs in half in the first year overall because of reduced admissions and ER visits and so on. And when they looked at the subset of people that they'd spent at least $25,000 or more on in the prior year, they cut their costs by fourfold in the next year. So these simple lifestyle changes can really be quite powerful. They're not only medically effective, but they're also cost effective. And we found over a series of studies 
Uh, we did randomized trials, you know, published in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine and JAMA and Circulation and American Journal of Cardiology, you know, and so on, that these same lifestyle changes could reverse a wide variety of the most common and costly chronic diseases. We started with heart disease, as I mentioned, in a series of randomized trials. We then found these same lifestyle changes could stop or reverse the progression of men who had early stage prostate cancer in collaboration with the then chair of urology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and at UCSF. And what's true for prostate cancer is likely to be true for breast cancer as well. We found that high blood pressure, high cholesterol, obesity, and type 2 diabetes could all be stopped and often reversed by making these same lifestyle changes. We then did a study with Craig Venter, who was the first to decode the human genome. And we found that these same lifestyle changes could change gene expression in over 500 genes. So often people say, oh, I've just got bad genes. You know, what can I do? Former President Clinton, I've been working with him for many years. And 14 years ago, when his bypass grafts occluded, uh, one of his cardiologists held a press conference on CNN and said, oh, it was all in his genes. His diet and lifestyle had nothing to do with it. And having worked with him for many years, I knew it had everything to do with it. So I sent him a note and I said, you know, the, the people I value the most are the ones who tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And you need to know it's not all in your genes. And I say that not to blame you, but to empower you because, you know, you're one of those powerful guys on the planet. And if it were all in your genes, you'd just be a victim and there wouldn't be much you can do. But in fact, we did a study with Craig Venter. We found that over 500 genes were changed in just three months, turning on the good genes, turning off the bad genes in simple terms, especially turning off the genes that cause these chronic diseases. And so he began doing that and he's talked publicly about how he's gotten better. And we did a study with Elizabeth Blackburn. We got the Nobel Prize for discovering telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes that regulate cellular aging. Uh, she had done studies with Alyssa Apple showing that eating junk food and chronic emotional stress and being sedentary and being depressed made your telomeres get shorter faster. And as your telomeres get shorter, your life gets shorter and the risk of premature death from all of these different chronic diseases goes up proportionally. We found for the first time that when you change your lifestyle, it actually lengthens telomeres. And when we published this, the Lancet editors sent out a press release and they called it reversing aging, first study showing reversing aging at a cellular level. And we're now in the midst of doing the first randomized trial to see if these same lifestyle changes might stop or reverse the progression of men and women who have early stage Alzheimer's disease. I think we're at a place and we're doing that in collaboration with the heads of neurology at, at Harvard and Mass General and University of California, San Diego, as well as uh, here in the Bay Area. And I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 44 years ago. In other words, the same biological mechanisms cause it. Less intensive interventions back then could slow the rate of which people's arteries got clogged. We found more intensive could stop or reverse that and get them less and less clogged over time. You know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure, if you will. And what's good for your heart is good for your brain. The same biological mechanisms that affect heart disease affect Alzheimer's. And so as you know, there are no drugs that can even stop the progression or worsening of Alzheimer's disease. At best, it can slow it down a bit. There was a big controversy, I'm sure you followed, earlier this year when the FDA approved um, aducanumab, the first drug in 20 years that was approved for Alzheimer's, in part because they spent billions and billions of dollars on drugs. They've all really failed. And there's been such a desperation for something that we could give people a sense of hope. And yet it's, you know, $56,000 a dose. It, a third of people get brain hemorrhages and brain swelling, have to stop taking it. And at best, it slows it down a little bit. Our hypothesis, and it's just a hypothesis now, we're halfway through the study, and we're hoping that we can show that we can stop and perhaps even reverse its progression. So the new book, that uh, the book that's just out in paperback, uh, which I was glad was a national bestseller in hardcover called Undo It, really puts forth this unifying theory that why is it that these same life, simple lifestyle changes, eat well, move more, stress less, love more, 
can reverse, not only help prevent, but actually reverse the progression of so many of the most common and costly uh, chronic diseases. And the reason is, is that they're not really so different from each other. You know, I was trained like all doctors to view heart disease and diabetes and type two diabetes and prostate cancer and uh, Alzheimer's and so on as being high blood pressure, high cholesterol, et cetera, as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses and different treatments. But I've come to really see them as really, they have more in common than they have different, really the same, in many ways, the same disease manifesting and masquerading in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, changes in the microbiome and telomeres and gene expression and angiogenesis and immune function and overstimulation of the sympathetic nervous system and so on. And each one of these biological mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get and how much love and support we have. And so it radically simplifies the recommendations that we give people. Um, it also helps explain why you often find what are called comorbidities. You, you alluded to this earlier, that the same patient might have heart disease, type 2 diabetes, or be overweight, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, et cetera, because they really are just the same disease manifesting in these different forms or entire countries like China 50 years ago had very low rates of all these chronic diseases until they started to eat like us and live like us and all too often die like us, you know, kind of a grand global study here in a, in a negative way. And what I keep being impressed by is how our bodies often have a remarkable capacity to begin healing, how dynamic these biological mechanisms are. You can get better quickly, you can get worse quickly. I mean, we found in our earlier heart disease studies that just three or four weeks, we were able to show improvements in, in blood flow to the heart and the ability of the heart to pump blood. Most people who had severe angina or chest pain became essentially pain-free in just three or four weeks, over 90%. And for someone who can't walk across the street without getting chest pain or play with their kids or make love with their spouse or go back to work without getting chest pain, within a few weeks, they're pain-free. It reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying or fear of something bad happening, like a heart attack or stroke, which are really not sustainable, to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which really are. Dr. Ornish, what you are describing really does come down to a simple equation. In effect, to find joy and pleasure and feeling good. And that reminds me of what Tony Robbins talked about in his book, Unlimited Power. This transformation and creation of lasting change begins with a commitment to constantly raise your own internal standards and a continual focus on improving the quality of your life. One useful tool that he talks about is that the single biggest roadblock that we have in creating change is the power of leverage. And one of the most important precepts of human behavior and change is that at its most basic level, there are two forces that motivate people to do what they do, the desire to avoid pain or the desire to gain pleasure. This principle is what causes that yo-yo pattern in some people. They go back and forth between taking action and creating change and losing their drive to take any action at all. And change is never a matter of ability. It's a matter of motivation. If a change is a should, will people change? No, probably not. Change has to not be a should. It must be a must. And to access leverage, you have to help someone associate massive pain to not changing now and massive pleasure to changing immediately. So I just wanted to ask you, can you further illustrate this premise of behavior change? And what media have you used or observed to help people realize meaningful changes in their lives? It really comes down to a very simple equation. If what I gain is more than what I give up, that's worth doing. 
And so often we try to scare people into changing. And that works great for a month or so after someone's had a heart attack, they'll do pretty much anything you ask them to do, but it's not sustainable because look, we all know we're all gonna die someday. The mortality rate is still 100%, but we don't think about it most of the time, it's too scary. So we just kind of presume we're gonna live forever, except we know we won't until something like a heart attack or some event gets our attention. But even then it only lasts a month or two. So I used to get into friendly debates with Al Gore when an inconvenient truth came out that, you know, if you tell the world is gonna melt down in 10 years, it's so scary that it's hard for people to really sustain that. And so what I've learned is that fear of dying is not really a sustainable motivator, but joy and pleasure and love and feeling good are. And when you make big changes, paradoxically, sometimes it's easier to make big changes than small ones. You know, 94% of the people who start our program finish all 72 hours of it throughout in all the sites that we've trained. Because when you make big changes, most people find they feel so much better so quickly it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying to joy of living. People say things like, you know, I like eating junk food, but I sure like not having chest pain or like I be able to think more clearly, have more energy, you know, feel better. There's a, a wonderful documentary called The Game Changers that came out a few, couple of years ago, the James Cameron, the uh, awesome filmmaker who did, you know, Terminator and Avatar and all those great films. He went on a plant-based diet a few years ago. He's an explorer as well as a filmmaker. And he learned that more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. So he went on a, a plant-based diet, made this film, and it shows how elite athletes raised their game when they went on a plant-based diet. They became the mixed martial artist national champion, or the Tennessee Titans won an NFL championship for the first time, or Doutsy Bausch got an Olympic uh, medal as a cyclist and almost 40 years old. <laughs> There's a wonderful scene in there where, where they have these three... Uh, athletes in their 20s who were put on a single meat-based meal, and then they measured the frequency and hardness of erections at night when they slept, because it's a normal guy function that guys have erections at night. Then they did repeated the same thing a day later with a single plant-based meal. And all three guys ended up having three to 500% more frequent erections and 10 to 15% harder erections after the single plant-based meal than the meat-based meal. It was actually a Beyond Meat meal. That, the film crew went on a plant-based side after they filmed it. I can't tell you how many people have been affected by that because it changes the whole equation of, first of all, how quickly these changes occur for better and for worse and how meaningful they can be. And that what you gain is so much more than what you give up. That's ultimately what enables people to make these sustainable changes. Dr. Ornish, thank you so much. I, I love where you've taken this conversation already and uh, just so excited to keep to dive deeper into some of these things. Let's talk more about the clinical and cost reduction outcomes associated with your program for reversing heart disease. You've developed a lifestyle medicine paradigm that includes a multimodal protocol, including whole foods, plant-based diet, smoking cessation, physical exercise, stress management, yoga, and meditation. Patients who complete your program show measurable and clinically significant improvements. Research associated with your program has demonstrated that heart disease can be reversed by eating a diet that includes predominantly plant-based foods, such as whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and soy products, with the option of non-fat dairy and egg whites. The program shows patients have measurable openings in their coronary blockages through reversal of plaque formation. Following the Ornish program, cardiac patients with depressive illness also showed significant improvements in depressive mood. And cost savings outcomes for the, from the nearly 4,000 patients who went through your program for reversing heart disease in a study via Highmark Blue Cross Blue Shield show reduction in overall health costs by 50% in the first year 
And these cost savings were sustained for at least three years. And only 1% of these patients who went through the program incurred claim costs in excess of 25,000 after the first year, compared to 4% of control group patients, a threefold difference in costs. The cost savings potential for diabetes reversal is also significant, since studies have shown that there is generally a seven to $10,000 cost savings reduction for each A1C point lowered for diabetic patients that adopted a low-fat vegan diet. Can you speak more about clinical and cost reduction outcomes of the Ornish program for reducing heart disease? And I'd love for you to share what you can about the current trial that's underway to investigate how lifestyle changes may reverse Alzheimer's disease. You just had a good summary of the, of the Highmark findings. My work is all about treating the cause. I had a cartoon drawn in 1981 when I was doing my uh, internship at Mass General, and it showed doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing, but nobody had turned off the faucet. It's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor? Like forever. It's like when people are put on drugs to lower their cholesterol, their blood pressure, their blood sugar, and they say, doctor, how long do I have to take these? The doctor says forever, right? It's like, how long do I have to mop up the floor? Like forever. Well, why don't we turn off the faucet? And the faucet to a much larger degree than I had once realized are these lifestyle choices that we make each day. What we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, how much love and support we have. And again, because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, it's not about preventing something bad from happening. There was a, a famous blog that was written from Doug Elmendorf uh, when he was the head of the Congressional Budget Office. And he wrote this famous blog with the question whether preventive medicine really saves money or just delays costs. And that's a question we can argue about. If you give lifestyle changes to reverse disease, you can save a lot of money in the first year. You know, it turns out there was a study that was done by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation that 5% of people account for between 50 and 80% of all healthcare costs. And these are the people who generally have chronic diseases and heart disease is number one among them. So if you do something to, to just simply look at prevention, then there's a question of whether you're really saving money and probably not necessarily in the first year anyway, which again is so important to insurance companies and payers because they know that you know a third of people change jobs and change insurance companies every year. But when you offer it as a, a lifestyle medicine, when you can reverse disease, when you focus on the 5% of people who account for 50 to 80% of all healthcare costs, then you can show cost savings in the first year. So whether it's a self-insured corporation where that those savings go right to their bottom line, or whether it's you know the US government with Medicare, or if it's a payer like a Highmark or Aetna or one of the other people that's been covering our program for, for many years throughout the country, then the cost savings really make sense that what you gain is so much more than what you it costs you. And, and you can you can demonstrate that very quickly. So my approach is all about treating the cause. I I got interested in doing this when I was a medical student at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and I was on Michael DeBakey's uh, surgical service, who those of you who are old enough will remember he was one of the people who invented bypass surgery. And he was a real tyrant in the operating room. You know, he would, he said, what year are you, son? I said, I'm starting my third year. He goes, damn, it's going to be so much harder to bust you out of here with these weird ideas you have. And, uh, you know, he, he would cut people open. We bypass her clogged arteries. He'd tell them they were cured and people would go home and more all too often because they were literally just bypassing the, the, the problem. They weren't treating the cause. Uh, they'd smoke and not exercise and eat junk food and, 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 and so on. And all too often their new bypasses would clog up and we'd cut them open again, sometimes bypassing the bypass. It's huge expense, of course. And I thought, wow, there's got to be a better way. You know, or again, when people are put on drugs to lower their cholesterol and blood pressure and blood sugar, and they say, you know, these are drugs you have to take the rest of your life. But what we've found over the years is that when you can treat the cause, when you can turn off the faucet, if you will, that the need for drugs and surgery is often greatly reduced. 
as I mentioned earlier, we did this demonstration project with Mutual Omaha, where they found that almost 80% of people who were offered my lifestyle program as a direct alternative, these are people who would have definitely had a bypass or a stent absent my program, were offered this as a direct alternative, and almost 80% were able to avoid it. So they could save $30,000 per patient in the first year. But of course, people avoided getting their chest cut open and they, you know, oftentimes stents uh, restenose and, and reocclude and so on. In fact, just to digress for a moment, there are now eight randomized trials that have shown that stents and angioplasties in stable patients, which is who mostly get them, don't work. They don't prevent heart attacks. They don't prolong life. And the cardiologists say, well, but they reduce angina. So it's worth doing for that alone, the chest pain. And then there was a study, I don't know how they got this past the Human Studies Committee in, in, in London that was published in The Lancet, where they called the STAR study, where they actually took men and women who had um, bad heart disease, randomly divided them into two groups. One group, they put a stent in. The other group, they put the catheter all the way up into their heart and just pulled it out without doing anything, what they called a sham stent. And they found the reduction in angina was the same in both groups, meaning it was a placebo effect. There was no real benefit. And so I remember when I was uh, going through this mini multi-year process with CMS about getting Medicare to cover our program. And when Bruce Vladek was the administrator for CMS, uh, he said, look, we'll, we'll do a demonstration project, but you have to get a letter from the head of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute that it's safe for older people to walk, meditate, quit smoking, eat vegetables, and love more. I said, you must be joking. He said, no. I mean, they were paying for you know, $100 billion a year for bypasses and stents at that time that are dangerous, invasive, expensive, and often ineffective, <laughs> you know, but these high-risk activities like quitting smoking and meditating and walking and loving more, you know, we had to actually do a whole literature review to, to show that they were not unsafe. One of the people that I mentioned in the first chapter of the Undo It book is an internal medicine doctor himself who had a massive heart attack named Robert Troyhertz. And the ejection fraction, which is the percentage of blood that your heart pumps each time it beats, should be at least 50% or greater, usually 60 or 70%. In other words, your heart pumps 50 to 70% of the blood that's inside it every time it beats. He had so much damage to his heart, it was pumping somewhere between 11 and 15%. It was barely pumping. And he was told that the only thing that could save his life would be a new heart. And he went through the program that uh, we've trained at UCLA in Los Angeles for nine weeks to get in better shape for the heart transplant while they were looking for a donor. And his heart improved so much, he didn't need a heart transplant by the end of nine weeks. Again, it just shows you how powerful these, like what's the more radical intervention here? A heart transplant, which by the way, costs about a million and a half dollars and you have to take a lifetime of immunosuppressive therapies or eat well, move more, stress less and love more. We have a number of patients like that. Recently, Medicare, uh, and we're grateful to Medicare for covering the program. They created a new benefit category back in 2010 called intensive cardiac rehabilitation to cover my program for reversing heart disease. That was a huge breakthrough. We had the support of Bill Clinton when he was president, but also Newt Gingrich when he was Speaker of the House. We had some of the most conservative uh, Republicans and the most liberal Democrats in both houses. It all came together in this very hyper-polarized world. It was very gratifying to bring people together like that to create this new benefit category. That was in 2010. And then I licensed my program to ShareCare, and we've been training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. And it's working. We're getting bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, bigger cost savings, better adherence than anyone's ever shown. 94% of the people finish all 72 hours of the program. It's an hour of exercise, an hour of meditation and yoga-based stress management. Who, thought, who would have thought Medicare would be paying for that? An hour of a support group and an hour of a group meal with a lecture. Just about a month ago, Medicare agreed to cover my reversing heart disease program when it's offered virtually through Zoom. Now we can reach people wherever they live in the country. Um, you know, they don't have to live within driving distance of one of the hospitals or clinics we've trained. So we can help reduce health disparities and health inequities and 
reach people in rural areas and so on, which is really gratifying to me. Ultimately, we could reach people anywhere in the world. If there's anything good that came out of COVID, as I mentioned, we've been doing this study to see if we can reverse the progression of early stage Alzheimer's disease that you asked about. And we were meeting, it's, it's the same intervention, again, for all of these different diseases, heart disease, diabetes, prostate cancer, and now Alzheimer's because of this unifying theory I mentioned earlier. And so we were meeting with the people several times a week, four hours at a time at our nonprofit research institute, the Preventive Medicine Research Institute in, in Sausalito. But then when COVID hit almost two years ago, we had to stop doing that because this is one of the most vulnerable populations. And so I thought, okay, well, either we're going to have to shut down our study or let's just try it all by Zoom. And I would never have done it had we not been forced to, but I was shocked and, you know, it turned out I was wrong that I didn't think this would work nearly as well. It's such a high touch intervention that I didn't think it would work nearly as well, but we're finding it's working just as well by doing it by Zoom as by doing it in person. And so it really changed my thinking about them. And I thought, wow, if we're able to do this via Zoom, it doesn't matter if they're across town or across the country. So that's when we started collaborating with Rudy Tanzi and Steve Arnold and Jonathan Rosen, the heads of, and Doreen Rents, the heads of neurology at, uh, at Harvard and Mass General and the Brigham with Doug Alasco and his colleagues at University of California, San Diego, with other with uh, Jonathan Arts and, and others at uh, Renown. And, and, and so they'll do the testing and the recruitment of the patients there, but we do the intervention from here and drop ship the food to them with our team of clinicians. And so uh, that'll help us recruit patients faster, add a whole nother level of credibility to the findings because we're working with such good people and hopefully enable us to complete the study uh, sooner. I, I think we're at a place of Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 44 years ago when I first started doing work. In other words, the less intent, the same biological mechanisms affect both diseases. Back then, less intensive interventions like an American Heart Association diet slowed the rate at which your arteries got clogged. We found a more intensive diet and lifestyle intervention could stop or reverse it. You know, they got less and less clogged over time. Uh, I think with, with um, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. We know that in the case of uh, Alzheimer's, less intensive lifestyle interventions, the mind study, the finger study and others slow the rate of progression into dementia. My theory is that again, perhaps a more intensive lifestyle intervention might stop or reverse it. And if we show that, I mean, we're cautiously optimistic and, and uh, by our interim findings, but if we show that this will in many ways be our most important work because at least with heart disease and diabetes and prostate cancer and so on, there are other drugs or interventions that, that have some benefit, but nothing really can even stop the progression of Alzheimer's. So if we can show that we can stop it, and especially if we show we can reverse its progression overall, that could potentially give millions of people, you know, new hope and new choices. And that's why I spend most of my adult life doing these research studies, because properly done with the leading uh, collaborators uh, at the leading institutions and published in the, the top tier peer-reviewed journals, it can redefine what's possible. When we redefine that heart disease could be reversed, it gave literally millions of people new hope and new choices, which can be self-fulfilling in a good way. If we can show that with Alzheimer's, and it's still a big if, but if we can, right now, the diagnosis is so devastating for people that they take all their hope away. They say, you know, it's only going to get worse. Maybe we can slow it down a little bit. Get your affairs in order. If there's anything you want to do, do it now. It's only going to get worse. And you know, when you lose your memories, you lose everything. And so the brain almost starts to shut down as an adaptive response because it's just, it's terrifying. You know, my, my mom died of it of Alzheimer's. Uh, I have one of the genes for it. All of her siblings died of it. Just seeing her brilliant mind decay is, you know, it's truly frightening for people. I mean, James Watson, uh, who of Watson and Crick, who, you know, first decoded the, the structure of DNA, was one of the first people to uh, have the uh, option of decoding his genome. 
And he said, I want to know everything but the Alzheimer's gene, because why would I want to know if I'm likely to get something that I can't do anything about? And it becomes a downward spiral for people, because when you take someone's hope away, they start to just, you know, the brain shuts down almost as an adaptive response to something that's so terrifying. So again, if we can show, and it's still a big if, but I'm cautiously optimistic that if we can show that we can stop or reverse the progression of Alzheimer's, that can be self-fulfilling in a good way, because then we can give people a sense of hope, which can motivate them to make these lifestyle changes, which ultimately may uh, help to slow and perhaps even reverse its progression. So that's why I love doing these studies, because if we can redefine what's possible, that can be self-fulfilling in a good way. Dr. Ornish, you make a compelling case, and the data certainly shows it, that having an intervention that really optimizes what a person eats, how they manage stress, how, how they move, how much they love, can reverse heart disease. As you mentioned, your program for reversing heart disease, it's the first program covered by Medicare under the category of intensive cardiac rehab, and it remains the only program scientifically proven in randomized control trials to reverse the progression of severe coronary heart disease by lifestyle changes without drugs or surgery. And healthcare organizations delivering value-based care are now embracing your program and using a complementary, multidisciplinary team approach to spend more time with patients to provide oversight for the disease reversal intervention. And this change in reimbursement policy was an absolute game changer for lifestyle medicine. But I still fear that more needs to be done with health policy to bring about societal change. By many measures, the population of the, of the U.S. is the unhealthiest of any high-income country, despite spending much more money as a share of the economy on health care. Our incidence of chronic disease is higher and life expectancy is lower, and then COVID-19 has magnified the effects of Americans' poor health. Those living with chronic disease are more likely to be hospitalized and to die from COVID-19 than those that are in good health. And the CDC reports that 94% of those that have died from COVID-19 had an average of 2.6 chronic conditions. So as we come out of the pandemic and the federal government begins to reshape public health, and CMMI expedites the industry transition to value-based payment, do you think we're going to see a refocus on federal research on nutrition and policies that will make healthy food more affordable and unhealthy food less affordable? You know, I so appreciate the chance to be uh, able to have this discussion with you. You mentioned COVID-19, which is, you know, obviously another, besides all these other chronic diseases that are pandemic, uh, you know, we, we're all counseled to be vaccinated, which of course everyone should do, and to wear masks and to socially distance and so on to avoid the virus, which is important. But how our body interacts with the virus is also something that is important. It's the kind of the other half of the equation that we don't really talk that much about, how we can strengthen our immune system. And especially with the new Omicron variant, which is even more infective, it's that much more important to do that. And there was a study that came out a couple months ago where they looked at almost 3,000 frontline healthcare workers in six countries, including the US, who had extensive exposure to COVID-19 every day. They were taking care of patients with COVID-19, so they were exposed to it you know, throughout the day, every day. And they found that those that were following uh, a plant-based diet, like I'd recommend, were 73% less likely to develop moderate to severe illness. Those following a, a pescatarian diet that was basically a plant-based diet with fish were about 57% less likely to get sick. But those following a low-carb, high-animal-protein diet, you know, the Atkins, paleo, keto diets, were nearly four times more likely to develop moderate to severe illness. I think that's amazing. And then Walter Willett's group at Harvard looked at about 600,000 people and found it was about a 42% percent 
lower risk of getting severe COVID if you eat a plant-based diet. So these simple things can really make a big difference. And of course, you can only imagine how much money would be saved if we you know, could prevent 73% of uh, moderate to severe illness and COVID simply by changing diet and lifestyle. It's a, a less expensive way to eat. This is essentially a third world diet. You know, It's fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products as they come in nature. I was on the board of the directors of the San Francisco Food Bank uh, a few years ago. Uh, and again, it's actually less expensive to feed people healthier food, not even pricing into the real cost of society, just the food itself. I was also, uh, I guess about 20 years ago, uh, a colleague of mine, and, and we trained the St. Vincent Paul Homeless Shelter in San Francisco. Over 30,000 homeless people went through our program. That's why I spent so many years to try to get Medicare to cover my program and to reimburse it. I didn't want this just to be for rich white people. I didn't want this just to be concierge medicine because the people who need it the most are the ones who can benefit by making these lifestyle changes. And they did it just as well. There's this idea that homeless people are somehow different you know, than we are. They're lazy or they don't work hard enough or whatever. And there's a certain percentage that are truly mentally ill. And unfortunately, they, get, um, they should be in institutions and treated, but they just end up on the street. But most people who are homeless just had a bunch of bad breaks, you know, there, but for the grace of God, go I. They got sick. They lost their job. They lost their health insurance. They had to mortgage their house to pay the health care costs. They lost their house and now they're homeless, you know. And so if homeless people can do it, anybody can do it. I am also always looking for leverage points. I, back in 1999, when I was... Uh, Speaking at the World Economic Forum in, in Davos, I met uh, the person who was the CEO of McDonald's at the time, and we had a meal together. And I said, you know, you're going to be the next big tobacco. You've got nothing but really junk food on your menu. Why don't you put some salads on there or some good things, you know? And I thought, you know, even incremental change on that scale with 43, they had like 43 million customers a day. I think it's even higher now can make a difference. And they did. But the, the sad thing, when we, since we're talking about economics here on this, on this show, is that the, the meat was subsidized, the healthy foods were not. So the burger was 99 cents, the salad was 5.95. So if you're on a fixed income, like so many people who eat at McDonald's are, if you're living in a food desert, you're gonna get more calories for your buck by eating junk food than by eating healthy food. And of course it doesn't really price into it the real cost of society by eating uh, junk food as well. We subsidize the foods that are the most unhealthy, which is insane. And so the reason that I I'm trying to find these leverage points. The reason I spent so much time with Medicare, because I figured if Medicare covered this, most of the other insurance companies would, which they have. And if you change reimbursement, you change medical practice and even medical education. It's not that we doctors are only interested in money, but if you're trained to use drugs and surgery only, and you're reimbursed to use drugs and surgery only, then that's what you do. You know, it's like the old saying from Abraham Maslow, the only tool you have is a hammer, you see everything is a nail. I, I'm on the nutrition working group of the American College of Cardiology. We published a paper a year or so ago in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, their most prestigious journal, where we surveyed how much nutrition education does the average doctor get? And it turns out it's four hours a year. And even that's mostly, you know, vitamin C and scurvy and stuff like that. And then we looked at cardiology fellowship programs and how much nutrition does the average cardiologist get in four years of fellowship? It turns out it's zero, you know, which is insane. And so, uh, I realized I could do a thousand studies with millions of people and it would still remain on the fringes. But if we change reimbursement, then it changes you know, medical practice and ultimately medical education. And that's what's been happening. And that's why I'm so grateful that Medicare and other insurance companies are now covering my program for reversing heart disease. And especially now that they're doing it virtually and that working with ShareCare, we can really create a whole new paradigm of healthcare rather than sick care. And ultimately we could do this internationally as well, because when you're doing it by Zoom, it really doesn't matter where you are anymore. 
Well, Dr. Ornish, I wanted to explore a little bit more about the health of our population and really focus on marginalized and minoritized communities. Social determinants of health, such as lack of access to nutritious food, are especially challenging with high-risk, low-income populations, such as Medicaid beneficiaries or dual eligibles. Approximately 13% of U.S. households report food insecurity, meaning that they lack consistent, dependable access to enough food for active, healthy living. And since the COVID-19 pandemic began, food insecurity has remained persistently elevated at record levels. Obviously, food insecurity is associated with poor health since many people are buying cheap food at the neighborhood bodega or McDonald's since they don't have access to a grocery store with healthy food options. And this plight of food insecurity leads to the increased use of big ticket healthcare services, such as emergency department visits and patient admissions, which makes it an important social determinant to tackle in managing vulnerable populations. In terms of cost, food insecurity is associated with $77 billion in excess healthcare expenditures each year. Food insecurity is also an issue of health equity since overweight and obesity in the U.S. occurs at much higher rates in racial and ethnic minority populations such as African Americans and Hispanic Americans who have a statistically greater chance of being uninsured. So, Dr. Ornish, I wanted to ask you, how can we use this lifestyle medicine movement to help us solve for this challenge of food insecurity in vulnerable populations? And for those who are not vulnerable, it's often easier to care about societal challenges like plant-based dietary consumption, global warming, and food insecurity. Can you speak about those particular issues as well and how your diet not only promotes personal health, but also provides a more optimal pathway to better address the nutritional needs of underserved populations, which benefits all of society. I'd love your question. So thank you for giving me the chance to talk about these things. My son is a musician and uh, he's been mentored by Quincy Jones, uh, who's his godfather. So uh, we, we both share a love of music. And one of his favorite indie bands is called Wolfpack. And they were performing at UC Berkeley at the Greek theater. And we went to see them together. This is a I guess three years ago before COVID hit and went backstage and the front man is a vegan. And uh, he said, you know, during my concerts, I, I usually talk about your work, but since you're here, why don't you talk about your work? And I said, what? And he said, yeah, in the middle of the concert, I want you to come out for 15 minutes and talk about why people should eat a plant-based diet. These are all, you know, millennials in their twenties and so on. I thought they're not going to be interested in reversing heart disease and diabetes. You know, when you're in your twenties, you think you're immortal. So I thought, well, what can I talk about? So I said, you know, it's so easy to feel helpless with facing these horrible problems that the world is facing now, you know, global warming and, and food insecurity, you know, and deforestation of the Amazon and all the sentient beings that are killed every year that don't need to be. I said, what can I do as one person to make a difference? And I said, but you know, something as primal as what you put in your mouth every day can make a difference in all these things. It turns out that more global warming is caused by livestock consumption than all forms of transportation combined. It takes 14 times more resources to make a pound of meat-based protein than plant-based protein. And, you know, there's enough food that no one need go hungry. No one should have food insecurity. There's enough food for everybody. I learned this when I was, uh, I mean, when I was on the board of the San Francisco Food Bank, one in five kids in San Francisco goes to bed hungry every day. This is insane. It's pitiful. It's, it's, not, it's not okay, now, especially in an area as prosperous as, as when we live in. It's not a food shortage. It's a distribution problem. If more people, if, if, an, if everyone were to eat a plant-based diet, there'd be enough food today to feed everybody. No one needs should, should go hungry. 
uh, the deforestation of the Amazon, which is another contributor to global warming because you know you lose all those trees that take up the CO2 is largely to make room for grazing cattle. Seven billion animals get slaughtered every year that really don't need to be uh, because you can eat just well, in fact, even better. And so part of what I'm learning is that if we can imbue our food choices with a sense of meaning and our lifestyle choices with a sense of meaning, that's part of what makes them sustainable. We talked earlier about why are we getting such high levels of adherence? You know, the average doctor thinks, oh, I can't even get my patients to take their statins. You know, the studies show that half to two thirds of people prescribed statins, which are a proven value, don't take them after just four to six months, even if, you know, the insurance pays the whole thing. And yet we're getting 94% adherence to our lifestyle medicine program after a year, which is a much bigger commitment for people. Why is that? That's so counterintuitive. And the reason is because the statins don't make you feel better, but the lifestyle changes do. And most people feel so much better so quickly, it reframes the reason, as we talked about earlier, from fear of dying to joy of living. If your chest pain goes away in a few weeks, you can do all the things you couldn't do before. As I mentioned, you know, if you can exercise and make love with your spouse and play with your kids and go back to work and not have pain, they say things like, you know, I like eating junk food, but not that much because, you know, I like feeling this good even more. And so if we can make it meaningful, if it's pleasurable, it's sustainable. And if it's meaningful, it's sustainable. And just the act of choosing not to eat certain foods can imbue them with meaning. I was suicidally depressed. I almost committed suicide when I was 19, when I was at Rice University in Houston, felt like I was just stupid. There's a whole story we can talk about that, but there's not enough time here. But I wrote about that in a couple of my books because I could take all the meaning out of my life. You know, I, who cares? So what? Big deal. Nothing matters. But I later learned that I could imbue meaning into my life. And one way that we can imbue meaning into our life is by choosing not to do certain things, not to eat certain foods. That's why I think that all, almost all religions and spiritual traditions have dietary guidelines. But I think that whatever the intrinsic benefit of eating or not eating certain foods, just the act of saying, I'm choosing not to eat certain foods, at least at certain times or on certain days, makes those choices meaningful. And the fact that they're hard makes them meaningful. You know, I love the moonshot speech that John F. Kennedy gave, you know, coincidentally at Rice 10 years before I was there. He said, we're going to the moon, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And sometimes things that are hard are meaningful. If you say, I don't know if you have kids or not, but I have kids. And if you say, was that hard? I say, oh yeah, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. But it's also the most meaning, one of the most meaningful things I've ever done. These studies are really hard to do, but they're really meaningful. You know, that's, I think, why we're here is to create that sense of meaning. And my spiritual teacher used to say, um, that's why they build temples on hills with lots of steps. So you have to work harder to get there. So again, it comes down to the same thing. What you gain is so much more than what you give up. And by choosing not to do certain things, if what you gain is more than what you give up, and if it makes those, if it imbues those choices with meaning, that's what makes them sustainable and ultimately transformative. Dr. Ordish, I want to build on what you were talking about with millennials and younger generations. And the food as medicine movement has been around for decades, but it's making inroads as physicians and medical institutions make food a formal part of treatment rather than relying solely on medications. By prescribing lifestyle changes, providing evidence-based nutrition interventions, and referring patients to the Ornish program for reversing heart disease, physicians are learning that they can prevent, limit, or even reverse disease by changing what patients eat. When I think about the future of this movement, I think about the millennial generation. Obesity is a slow killer since it often takes a lifetime to develop a chronic disease, so there's still hope for reversal in younger populations. Currently, millennials are on track to be the most obese generation, and research shows that the six cancers proven to be related to obesity are increasing more rapidly in people younger than 50 than those older than 50. The soaring obesity rates in the millennial generation and the alarming rates of obesity-related cancers in those under 50 
creates a great opportunity for the healthcare system to turn the tide. But this generation has some unique challenges not seen at the same magnitude in other generations. 18 to 34 year olds report higher levels of loneliness and stress than any other age group, according to the APA. Anxiety disorders affect nearly one fifth of those 18 and over. And then you have social media use in this generation, which is making them sick with FOMO, dopamine addiction from social feedback, psychological manipulation by algorithms, and connecting with other people in a way that doesn't support personal human connection and healing. How can lifestyle medicine better resonate with younger patients? And how do you think we can reverse the disease trajectory we're seeing with the millennial generation? Suicide is one of the leading causes of death in millennials. There's been a radical shift in our culture in the last 50 years with the breakdown of the social networks that used to provide people a sense of love and connection and community. You know, 50 years ago, most people had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a neighborhood with two or three generations of people living together. They had a job that they'd been at for 10 years or more that felt secure. They had a a church or a synagogue or a mosque or a club they went to regularly. And many people today don't have any of those things. And you say, well, that's just, you know, modern life. You know, they've got Facebook. But one of the studies that my wife Ann and I uh, cite in our new book on Do It is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Because it's not a true, it's not an authentic intimacy. It's a fake intimacy. I mean, it's like, here I am in front of the Eiffel Tower. And here I am with my perfect, you know, kids and my perfect life. And it looks like everybody has this perfect life, but you, and that makes you feel depressed. But if you grow up in a neighborhood with two or three generations of people, or you see extended family regularly, or you, you hang out with people at work and you get to know them over years, or you have a church or a club or synagogue or whatever that you, you see people on a regular basis, they know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile and your bio sketch. They know your dark stuff. You know, they know, like in my case, that I almost committed suicide when I was 19, or they, they know if someone got busted, or they know when they messed up in some way. And, and you know that they know, and they know that you know that they know, and they're still there for you. And there's just something really primal about being fully seen, you know, warts and all. And still accepted. Again, coming back to James Cameron in Avatar, there's this, you know, I see you, which is really from an African proverb. I see all of you and I'm still there for you. That doesn't happen on Facebook. Most people don't post their dark demons and things like that. And it's such a primal need. You know, people used to say, oh, you know, it's so touchy-feely, your program. And I used to get defensive and say, oh, no, no, it's hard science. Look at our quantitative arteriograms and our cardiac positron emission tomography and radionuclide ventriculography and blah, blah, blah. And then one day I said, you know what? It is touchy-feely. That's why it works so well. We are touchy-feely creatures. We're creatures of community. That's how we've survived as a species, is by learning how to take care of each other. And anything that creates a sense of connection and community is really healing. Even the word healing comes from the root to make whole. You know, yoga is from the Sanskrit meaning to yoke, to unite, union. These are really old ideas that we're rediscovering. And study after study, and I write about this a lot in the, in the Undo It book, that Study after study has shown that people who are lonely and depressed and isolated, which I think is the real pandemic in our culture, besides COVID and all these chronic diseases, the people who are lonely and depressed are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely than those who have a sense of love and connection and community. I don't know anything in medicine that has that kind of power, in part because we're more likely to abuse ourselves when we're feeling lonely and depressed. You know, when doing these studies, I got to know the patients really well. And I'd ask them, I'd say, you know, teach me something. Why do you smoke? Why do you overeat? Why do you drink so much? Why do you work so hard? Why do you abuse opioids? Why do you play so many video games? These behaviors seem so, so uh, maladaptive to me. And they look at me and they go, you don't get it, Dean. You don't have a clue, do you? These behaviors aren't maladaptive. 
they're very adaptive. They help us deal with our loneliness, our pain, our depression. Our work is not just about giving people information. If it were, nobody would smoke. It's not like people don't know it's good for you. It's, um, it's not like, hey, I want you to quit smoking. You go, oh, I'll, I'll quit today. I didn't know that. Everybody knows it's not good for you. But we can't just give information. We can't just focus on the behavior. We have to focus on these deeper issues. Because telling someone, as I learned when I was so depressed, telling someone who's lonely and depressed and isolated, they're going to live longer if they just change their diet and lifestyle. They go, you don't get it. I'm just trying to get through the day. I don't know if I want to live longer. I was ready to kill myself. You know, that's not living longer at all. And I've had so many patients say things like, I've got 20 friends here in this package of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is. You're going to take away my 20 friends? What are you going to give me? Or they'll say food fills that void. Or a well-known food writer of the New York Times many years ago said, you know, fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain. Or opioids, we have this opioid epidemic, uh, numb the pain. You know, alcohol numbs the pain, other drugs numb the pain. Video games distract ourselves from the pain. More money is spent on video games now than for movies. Working all the time is a more socially acceptable way we've all done as a way of distracting ourselves from our pain. But you know, the pain isn't the problem. You know, we're trained, I was trained to kill pain as quickly as possible, to kill it or numb it or bypass it. But the pain is saying, hey, listen up, pay attention. You're not doing something that's in your best interest. And pain can be a really powerful catalyst for transformation because change is hard. I don't want to, you know, I can say, yeah, we 94% of the people are, are doing this, but it's not easy. It's hard. But if you're hurting badly enough and the doctor or whoever can help you connect the dots between what you're doing and how you feel for better and for worse, the pain can be a great catalyst for change. So can science and research. It's kind of like people say, well, uh, you know, I'm hurting so bad. I mean, this stuff, you know, vegetarian diet, seriously, and meditation, are you kidding me? But uh, I don't know, I'm hurting so bad. Let me try it. And uh, it's been proven to work. Okay, let me give it a try. And then they try it. And because these biological mechanisms are so dynamic, most people feel so much better so quickly, whether it's the chest pain going away or memory improving or whatever it happens to be. Then they say things like, you know, what I gain is so much more than I give up, then I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, I like eating junk food, but I, this is even better. The first time someone said to me, you know, having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me. My, my initial reaction was like, what are you crazy? And they'd say, no, that's what it took to get my attention to begin making these changes that have made my life so much more joyful and meaningful. I'm rediscovering, I'm learning how to quiet down my mind with meditation. It's not just about managing stress. It's about quieting down my mind and body enough to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being. And I can go out in the world and accomplish even more. You know, my relationships are getting better with my family. I can do things. My heart disease is getting better. I can do things I couldn't do before. And I never would have done that had I not, you know, had that experience. But unfortunately, it's an opportunity that I wasn't trained as a doctor and most doctors are not trained to take advantage of. When someone is suffering, you know, it's like that old saying about, you know, crisis is, you know, in Chinese is an opportunity. There's an opportunity when someone's hurting, not to just to kill or numb or bypass the pain, but help people explore that as a doorway or as a catalyst for transforming their lives in ways that make it so much more joyful and meaningful. But in fact, I've been doing this since I was 19. My catalyst was being depressed for someone else. It might be a heart attack or maybe healthcare costs or whatever it happens to be, but it gets your attention in a way that can make it a doorway for transformation that can really bring meaning into everything that we do. Dr. Ornish, I wanted to ask you also about the suffering that's happening in the medical profession. It's been shown that the attitudes and feelings of doctors bear directly on the way they treat patients. Adding physician satisfaction to IHI's triple aim as a fourth imperative speaks to the importance of physician well-being in addition to patients' well-being. It has been projected that burnout is affecting over half of the physicians in practice. 
And a recent Harvard report even called burnout a public health crisis that urgently demands action. Some physicians are even going so far as to say the profession is dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient in describing the pain they feel with the current system. Can you speak to how the practice of lifestyle medicine can revitalize the medical profession by providing it with an improved sense of agency to improve clinical outcomes and also help physicians find a sense of altruistic purpose that is often missing in the big business of healthcare? I love your question. Don Berwick I, I, is a friend and who I admire greatly, and I think he's really right on, on point here. Most people go into medicine because they want to help people. You know, as, as insipid as that sound, that's why I went into medicine. That's why most doctors go into medicine. But if you, you know, relegate it to practicing medicine by algorithm, AI does algorithms better than we do. And so we're ultimately all going to get replaced by an iPhone app. You know, if that's all we are, is just technicians that are following algorithms. It's not fun if you have to see a new patient every 10 or 15 minutes and you're just pushing pills at them that you don't think they're going to take anyway. And then you have to deal with all the paperwork of the insurance companies and so on. It's not really fun to practice. You know, most physicians studies show wouldn't recommend medicine as a career for their sons and daughters. And that's so sad to me because I love being a doctor and it's a sacred opportunity to, you know, there's the science of medicine, which I'm all about, but there's also the art of medicine and the spiritual basis of medicine. You know, again, it's a sacred, when, when people are, hurting, they're vulnerable. And when they're vulnerable, there's an intimacy that comes that is sacred. And one of the reasons that I spent 16 years of my life working with CMS to get Medicare to create this new benefit category is that I wanted it to be reimbursable for doctors to spend time with patients and to realize that they can leverage their time. You know, in our Medicare program, it's a doctor, but it's also a nurse, a meditation teacher, an exercise physiologist, a registered dietitian, and a psychologist, and they all work together as a team. The doctor's quarterback, but he or she isn't really spending a lot of their time. Most of it is done by these other people. It's you know 18 hours, four hours of time, an hour of exercise, an hour of meditation and yoga, an hour of a support group, an hour of a group meal. But the doctor gets to really oversee all of that and really get the satisfaction that comes from finding that they can reduce or get many people off of medications, help them avoid surgery, help them use the experience of suffering, as we talked about as a doorway for transforming their lives in ways that really matter to them. It's the most meaningful work that I, I can imagine. And so I knew that if we could change the reimbursement for that and create a model where they're now spending 72 hours instead of 15 minutes with a patient, but they can leverage their time so they don't have to do it all themselves, that can be an incredibly meaningful way. And, and that's why I think people are, why lifestyle medicine is the fastest growing field there is now, because it's so meaningful for people to be able to work with people at the time where they're the most suffering and the most vulnerable, and to help them make changes that go way beyond just unclogging arteries. I remember one of the patients in a, one of our earlier studies, he was about to have a second angiogram to see whether his arteries were less clogged. And Somebody said, are you worried about if your arteries are more open? He said, well, that's why I got into the study because I wanted my arteries to be more open. I'm less concerned if my arteries are more open because I'm more open. And that's really what I hear over and over again is how meaningful it is for people to begin making these, these changes in ways that really help transform their lives. And I'm hoping that now that we've changed reimbursement and, and creating this new paradigm for healthcare, that's what lifestyle medicine is and why I'm so excited that it's really the fastest growing field of medicine. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine was established in 2004. It's the professional home for physicians and other allied health professionals who are really dedicated to lifestyle medicine first approach. They already have 7,500 members. They do board certification and to me, uh, an honor and a privilege to be working with them. 
Well, we love the ACLM too and what they're doing to drive the future of value-based care with lifestyle medicine. I actually had a conversation last week with Jeff Miklos, who leads the Healthcare Transformation Task Force, and we talked about how much lifestyle medicine is the future of value-based care. As much as the value movement right now is focused on health equity to ensure population health, in just a few years, lifestyle medicine will be the other main pillar for which we deliver value in the healthcare industry. And, you know, Dr. Ornish, as we think about the future of the food as medicine movement, I can't help but also think about how healthcare is experiencing a digital transformation that has been decades in the making when coupled with breakthroughs in medical science that could have an absolutely game-changing effect on the health of our population. I mean, it really does seem like we're entering into this fourth industrial revolution where there's going to be disruption in the current care delivery model once AI and Internet of Things and 5G, 3D printing, robotics all take hold. And so I wanted to ask you how you think advances in biotechnology may help us unlock the medical benefits of human genomic mapping. I mean, many are saying that we're entering this era of personalized medicine that will take us to a point where people can actually have a tailored diet and lifestyle program based on their genome, blood test results, and clinical status the same lifestyle changes that can reverse and help prevent the progression of a wide variety of the most common costly and debilitating chronic diseases are going to be more effective because they're personalized. In the future, what role do you think technology and genomics will play in, in the food as medicine movement? Will the science of nutrigenomics eventually allow us to fully understand the effects of food and food constituents on gene expression and then be able to offer medically tailored meals that are more personalized for patients at the genetic level to prevent disease? Well, I know that's a big thing these days, and I'm certainly familiar with all of the things you've mentioned, but what I come back to is radical simplicity. Yeah, it's, you know, we can talk about tailoring meals. We know there's a genetic variability in how efficiently a given person can metabolize dietary fat and cholesterol. And it goes back to Brown and Goldstein's work. They got the Nobel Prize for discovering the LDL receptor on the cell membranes. And the more receptors you have, the more efficiently your body can metabolize and, and get rid of uh, saturated fat and cholesterol in your diet. And some people are, have lots of receptors. Those are the people who live to be 100 and they say, oh, what do you eat? And they, oh, I eat a pound of hamburger every day and steak for lunch and cheeseburger for dinner. And you kind of go, wow, diet must not play much of a role. Look what they're eating, they're 100. But of course, everyone who ate that way, who didn't have so many LDL receptors and wasn't so efficient at getting rid of fat and cholesterol in their diet, never made it to 100. That's who you're left with. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who don't have as many receptors, and those are often the people who get heart disease because they're uh, not as efficient at getting rid of the fat and cholesterol in their diet. But, you know, if you look at countries, you know, like China or Japan or other Asian countries who 50 years ago had their rates of heart disease were about as low as our rates of malaria are here. Uh, it wasn't until they started, as I mentioned earlier, eat like us and live like us, they started to die like us. But why is that? And because it doesn't really matter if you're very efficient or inefficient at metabolizing dietary fat and cholesterol if you're not eating much of it. And so, yeah, you could probably, you know, there, there are already groups that are trying to promise tailored meals and, you know, personalized gen genomic uh, this and that. But I come back to radical simplicity. The Undo It book is basically saying, you know, it's really not that hard. You know, I've done so many diet wars and diet debates with Dr. Atkins and other people like that over the years. And I stopped doing that. I said, look, this is it. If you eat a whole foods plant-based diet that's naturally low in fat and sugar and refined carbs, 
It doesn't matter if you're very efficient at metabolizing dietary fat and cholesterol because you're not eating enough of it to really matter or whatever the particular uh, metabolic or genomic thing that you're looking at. We know that if you eat this way and if you manage, it's not like you have to do one kind of exercise for heart disease and a different one for diabetes and a different one to lose weight and a different one for prostate cancer, a different one for Alzheimer's. It's exercise. You know, if you like it, you'll do it. Do what you like. It's the same with meditation. If you uh, find a form of meditation that you like, it could be secular, it could be religious, doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be tailored. It's just what, if you like it, what's your preference? Spend more time with your loved ones, with your friends and family. There was a wonderful study that was done, you know, we're talking about uh, COVID and so on. There was a wonderful study that was done by Sheldon Cohen, it was published in the journal of the AMA, and they dripped rhinovirus, which causes the common cold in the noses of volunteers, and all of them, 100% became infected, but not everyone developed the signs and symptoms of a cold. And those that had just one to three, what they called social ties, like defined as a phone call or a visit from a friend every couple of weeks, were over four times more likely to actually develop a cold than those that had six or more social ties during that time. That was just, you know, it doesn't even have to be in person. It could just be a, a virtual visit or a phone call. The love more part, you know, plays a difference as well, but it doesn't, it's not like you have to be with this kind of love or that kind of love. It can be erotic love. It can be familial love. It can be friend love. It can be any kind of love. Just anything that brings us together is really healing. And so I come down to radical simplicity. Having gone through the whole 44 years of complexity, it comes down to, again, to that quote from Albert Einstein. You know, if you can't, explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. I, Steve Jobs is one of my closest friends for more than 20 years. And we would talk about the iPhone when he was developing and he would say, you know, he was more proud of what he left out of the iPhone than what he put in it. Because again, it has that, it has this supercomputer behind it, but it's the interface is just radical simplicity. My daughter, when she was, you know, a year old was figuring out how to, how to use it. She didn't have to read a, a manual. The whole premise of the undo it book is to say, look, We've distilled it down to its essence. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. You don't have to personalize it. You don't have to tailor it. I mean, some people can metabolize sugar and refined carbs better than others. But if you're not eating very many of them, it doesn't matter. And the same thing with saturated fat or cholesterol or other kinds of things in our diet. Animal protein itself may be more important even than the fat and cholesterol in terms of its inflammatory effects and so on. And so, but if you're not eating much animal protein, the fact that some people get more inflammation than others by eating animal protein, don't eat it. You don't have those problems. I've just come down to trying to make it as simple and as easy and as understandable and as generalizable as possible. Well, Dr. Ornish, I think that's a great place to land the plane today. You're such a revolutionary thought leader, such a powerful understanding of health, healthcare, and medicine. You know, I think our listeners are really going to benefit. And, you know, as I said earlier, I think we can save some lives here. You know, just in terms of parting thoughts, is there anything that you would want to say to our listeners that maybe want to learn more about Ornish Lifestyle Medicine in your new book? Well, I appreciate the question. And you've asked such intelligent and wonderful questions. And I, again, awareness is always the first step in healing. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to hopefully raise awareness in some people. If people are more interested in learning more, the Undo It book is now in paperback. If you go to ornish.com, if you're interested in enrolling in our Alzheimer's studies or learning more about the program, the hospitals and clinics we've already trained, I'm working with ShareCare now to virtualize the intervention and scale that. And we've already virtualized, but to now scale that uh, over the next, in the coming year. So stay tuned for that so that wherever you live, you'll have access to this program. But most of all, just to understand that what you, these simple changes can make a powerful difference and you don't have to take my word for it. The nice thing about it is that if you make really big changes all at once, you're going to feel so much better, whether you have a chronic disease or not, then you know from your own experience that it's worth doing. And I would just encourage you to, to, to see for yourself and then you'll know. And then it, 
it transcends, well, maybe that expert's right, or maybe that expert's right, then you just do it and you know how much better you feel. You go, okay, when I do this, I feel good. When I do that, I don't feel so good. So let me do more of this and less of that. And then that makes it sustainable. Well, Dr. Ornish, it's been a great honor to be with you today. Thanks for joining the Brace to Value this week. We really appreciate it. Me too. Thanks so much. And thank you again for this opportunity to be of service in such a meaningful way. I'm deeply grateful. 